0: Good evening and welcome to the Sydney Ideas International Public Lecture Series at the University of Sydney. I'm Meredith Hall, Program Manager for Sydney Ideas. I'm very pleased to present the 2009 Rex Cramporn Lecture by Fiona Winning as part of the Sydney Ideas Program tonight. I would like to thank Tim Jones, Artistic Director and General Manager of the Seymour Centre and the Rex Cramporn Memorial Committee members, Derek Nicholson and Kim Spinks, for their support in the presentation tonight. Tonight's lecture will run for 45 minutes and will be followed by a 30-minute question and answer session. We have one microphone set up at the bottom of the aisle there, so please come down to the microphone with your questions after the lecture, and we are recording it for the university's website, so please make sure you use the microphone for your questions. The next Sydney Ideas lecture at the Seymour Centre is on the 17th of March when we co-present with the Walkley Foundation a lecture by Mark Shapiro of the Centre for Investigative Reporting in the US. He will be talking to his theory that environmental reporting is less about reporting on science than reporting on politics and the problems that confront journalists as a result. Then on April the 7th, we present a lecture by the university's inaugural Buddhist Education Foundation visiting professor, Peter Skilling. His lecture will address the question, did the Buddha invent Asia? Buddhism, Buddhists and the very idea of Asia. But for tonight, I'd like to welcome Associate Professor Tim Fitzpatrick from the Department of Performance Studies and Head of the Schools of Letters, Art and Media here at the University of Sydney. Tim will introduce Fiona Winning and her work to you. Thank you, Tim.
1: Thanks, Meredith. Actually, I'm here not in my official capacity in the university, but as a member of the Rex Cramporn Committee, which was set up shortly after Rex's death to honour his contribution to Australian theatre. Rex died too soon. He was a great director who deserves to be remembered. Often you wish you could forget things you see in the theatre... But there are times when you experience something unforgettable. Sometimes it's particularly special because you know at the time that it's unforgettable. And some of those times you actually do remember uh, and realise 30 years later that you haven't forgotten the unforgettable, so it must have been unforgettable. And Rex gave me more of those moments per square metre than anybody else I know. In the double bill of Berenice and Scapin, which was performed uh, in the recording hall at the Sydney Opera House. I was sobbing, actually, at, uh, as the last echoes of the tragedy dissipated, and simultaneously I was laughing uproariously at the first bits of business in the, in the comedy, which came straight on. It's the, the strongest interplay of, of interacting emotions that I've ever experienced. In The Marsh King's Daughter... At the old Nimrod, Rex worked with Gillian Jones and two pieces of Flotsam and Jetsam. Peter Brooks' RSC Midsummer Night's Dream Company had just disbanded in Sydney at the end of its world tour and Hugh Keysburn and Ralph Cottrell were castaways looking for the next thing to do. In the dream, Hugh had played Snug the Joiner and a wonderful lion with a cardboard box for a head who ran amok in the audience. A pretty earthy performance. And in The Marsh King's Daughter, I saw Hugh Keysburn fly. A combination of words, gesture, sound effects and lighting, blended in the way that Rex, and maybe only Rex, could do. And speaking of flotsam and castaways, The Tempest is, I'm sure, still remembered by thousands ...of people who saw the production that toured New South Wales schools. And I wonder how many of them know or remember or care who directed it. When, we died, when Rex died, we set up a committee to collect funds... ...that would ensure that we could celebrate uh, his career and remember it. It was a career that spanned the old Tote... ...NIDA, the Actors Company, the Paris Company... ...Playbox in Melbourne, of course and the Theatre Studies Service Unit, uh, now Performance Studies, at the University of Sydney. Each year we've organised lectures here and in Melbourne about the state of theatre in Australia. Jim Sharman, Neil Armfield and Geoffrey Rush, Rhoda Roberts, Wesley Enoch, Nick Enright, Lindy Davies are just some of the people who've given those lectures. The lectures have been published regularly in in Australasian Drama Studies and will be published uh, in the new future as a collection there's also uh, just about to come out from currency press uh, a collection of rex's creative writings and critical writings edited by ian maxwell of performance studies so that's the background of, of this lecture theatre uh, this lecture series um from the committee's perspective tonight we've got i hope an unforgettable lecture i'm sure Fiona Winning is a writer and a producer, newly independent, she says, after nearly a decade at the helm of... lashed to the helm, perhaps, of uh, the performance space. She's been a director of Playworks. She was the artistic director of Death Defying Theatre, which many of you will know under its current name, Urban Theatre Projects. Fiona has conceived and produced events in theatres, in galleries, in public spaces... Collaborating with artists and local communities. She was involved in developing carriage works just up the road and in initiatives such as Time, Place, Space, Interdisciplinary Arts Laboratories. Also with Mobile State's Touring Contemporary Performance Circuit. I hope this circuit's longer than their name. And intercultural exchanges, of course, with uh, international partners. So please welcome with me Fiona, whose title is Creativity and Flexibility The Nexus Between Infrastructure, Space and Art. Fiona.
2: Good evening, um, and thanks, Tim, for your introduction. Uh, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of this land, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and to pay my respect to the elders, both past and present, on this place on which we gather. I'd also like to thank the Rex Cramporn Committee for inviting me to do this lecture, frightening as it is, and Sydney Ideas for including it in the series. I didn't know Rex. When I first heard, heard of him, I was a young Brisbane artist. It was the early 1980s long after the performance syndicate days, actually during Rex's time running the actors' development stream at Playbox in Melbourne. I remember his name only in the context of the long list of artists who'd left Queensland, fled from the small-mindedness of Bjelke Peterson's Let's Ban the Street March, in fact dissent in any form and Let's Declare a State of Emergency because we can. Rex, like many artists, went south, seeking the broader culture and expanded academic and theatre opportunities of Sydney and Melbourne. By the time I too left Queensland, Rex was directing Measure for Measure for the Adelaide Festival, a world away from my experience. But Rex's commitment to the idea of theatre as a collaborative practice, rather than as a vehicle for his individual expression, was something I shared. And I want to talk about that, not from my perspective as a theatre director, but more broadly as an arts worker, as a producer and as a collaborator in the architecture of our contemporary performance cultures. Over the years I've been a freelance theatre maker, an artistic director of a community-based theatre company and a national writers organisation and a director of a centre for interdisciplinary practice, always part of the small to medium performing arts sector. In my last job at Performance Space, I worked with development, producing and presenting organisations nationally and internationally, companies generating new work and hundreds of independent artists working project to project in various clusters, ensembles or casual collaborations creating new work. In partnership with these people and companies, Performance Space presented about 50 events a year, including residencies to develop new work, Interactive installations, seasons of new dance and performance works, one-off performance events, laboratories for artist-to-artist exchange, and forums connecting artists with audiences in lively conversation. During that time, I worked on the development of the Carriage Works as a new contemporary art space with my colleagues, And, with my colleagues, moved performance space from our long-term home at Cleveland Street in Redfern into the new centre at the Everly Rail Yards. I'd like to unpack some of that experience and learning during this lecture tonight and make some observations about the often problematic relationships between hard and soft infrastructures, hard being the buildings and equipment and soft being the organisations, the people within them creating various patterns of activity. How does the physical space impact on the practice and on the art produced? What are the economies of scale? What environments enable artists to create their best work and audiences to engage in a multiplicity of ways? And how might change be implemented to realise that more fully? I hasten to add that the questions I ask tonight and the challenges I make in the lecture are as much to myself as an arts worker as a leader, as a passionate believer, as to everyone in the arts sector and beyond. Firstly, I need to tell the story of the development of the carriage works. Um, In March 2002, New South Wales Arts Minister and Premier Bob Carr announced that the Ministry for the Arts would acquire the former carriage works and blacksmiths workshop at Everly North for a contemporary performing arts centre. An initial $15 million was spent to purchase the site from State Rail and later a further $34.8 million was committed to develop the centre. This was preceded by years of lobbying by some of the people in this room, by Company B who'd leased much of the space from State Rail, from other tenant artists and companies including the physical performance sector who'd contributed to the success of the Olympics opening ceremony and from Performance Space. Carr's decisive action made the prospect of carriage works becoming a new contemporary arts centre in the heart of Redfern a reality. The vision for this building was simple. It was to create a flexible centre connecting making and presenting spaces. In other words, to house the continuum of performance practice from conceptual development through to creative development, rehearsal and public presentation. It was to be an inspiring centre of innovative contemporary performance for the people of Sydney. Arts New South Wales, as they later became, commissioned Root Projects Australia to do a business plan based on accommodating a number of organisations who were at that time housed in chronically expensive, inappropriate or unsafe environments around Sydney. Root Projects were later appointed project managers and Tonkin's alike Agria architects won the commission to design the building. Um, The architectural proposition of the building, as articulated by Tim Greer, TZG's design director for the carriage works, was to honour the change of the guard from one generation, from one use to another, from effectively a 19th-century carriage works to an early 21st-century performing arts centre. We based our decisions on the very ethereal idea that the new concept lurked within the artefact, and we really wanted to see how the traces of one generation can be reflected on another. That became our invisible thread to hold it together. Still quoting Tim, one of the other driving principles was the idea of hierarchy. If you put at one end of the bookshelf the Sydney Opera House, the building was conceived as very much the other bookend, and in some ways they they frame all the other performing arts venues that exist in Sydney. Arts New South Wales saw carriage works as the missing piece within the performing arts of Sydney. We wanted it to be the antithesis of the Opera House. We didn't want to mimic conventional theatre. We wanted it to be this alternative venue in all senses of that word. Still quoting Tim, the architect. When you go to conventional theatres, there's a very clear hierarchy of how people move through a theatre, how performers come to the space. And the only meeting space is in the middle, in the performance space itself. We wanted to subvert that hierarchy... Of course, you can't do that completely because there's a number of practical things that need to happen. Stage sets need to be built. Equipment needs to be delivered. But we saw this beautiful overlap between the factory that it was, which was essentially a set of coordinates when you break it down, a series of bays and tracks. And we thought if we could put the containers that are the performance spaces, the rehearsal rooms and the offices around the building in a very flat, distributed way and then allow the patrons to move from the front to the back of the building and back again, which is why the loos are so far back, that would allow people to experience the structure of the original building. Then, to effectively turn the foyer into a large performance space, we were meshing the two lives of the building. We thought this would work well for the types of performances here and also for the historic reading of the building. End quote from Tim in other words no fixed boundaries between artists and audiences no proscenium arches no stage doors and rehearsal rooms that can be open to the public even the doors between the traditionally separate worlds of front and back of house are glass literally transparent so the barriers between artists and audiences have been physically subverted wherever possible in the architecture the carriage works design then appropriately and wonderfully reflects the practices of the art sector it was built for. Contemporary practices with permeable spectator-performer relationships. The building is a successful fusion of geometry and atmosphere, a great match for the bodies intended to inhabit it, contemporary artists and audiences. Oh, the soft infrastructure. Um, Six months prior to the scheduled opening of the Carriage Works, Sue Hunt was appointed by Arts New South Wales to set up a management structure and vision for the building. Sue and her team have worked tirelessly to build the soft infrastructure and create the necessary income to keep the centre active. And it necessarily remains a work in progress. Carriage Works is still a new organisation. The other parts of the soft infrastructure at CarriageWorks are, of course, the pre existing organisations Performance Space, the making and development organisations Earth, Stalker Marigeku, Force Majeure, and the new ish organisation, Playwriting Australia. Performance Space is, of course, a development and presenting organisation. And it's that relationship between the two presenting organisations, Performance Space and Carriage Works, That is also still a work in progress. What they share is a commitment to making carriage works a vibrant place for audiences to experience great, life-changing, unforgettable, extraordinary contemporary arts. But they're fundamentally very different organisations. One is established and one is new. One is a tenant and the other is the landlord. One has a primary commitment to the independent arts sector practising across and between performance, dance, media and visual arts, and the other has the responsibility of the building itself, with all its systems encompassing technical and front-of-house, hires from small and major arts organisations and commercial sectors, and a presentation programme. Great work has been done by both of these organisations in the short time since Carriageworks opened opened its doors in January 2007. But it would also be true to say that both have struggled with the logistics of the new building, with the new systems developed or needing to be developed, and indeed with each other's different understandings of practice, of programming, of culture and of ways of doing. Much of this, I believe, stems from two issues. The first, inevitably and simply, being the scale of the building which requires knowledge, systems and resources to be accrued over time. And the second being the arranged marriage the organisations found themselves in, with little time to do anything other than get in and make it work. And both organisations have done just that. Audiences are, by and large, thrilled by the building, when audiences attend a large event, or better still, when multiple works are on simultaneously at Carriage Works, different audiences mix and the foyer feels like a buzzing social space, uh, an exciting place to be. Prim- primarily, of course, punters are coming to see the program, so the art itself needs to be adequately resourced for the spaces. And the soft frame within the building, the front of house, the cafe and bar, and the other activities going on in the public spaces all also need careful attention. They need to be a good cultural fit and given the range of events, this soft frame needs to be as flexible and creative as the hard frame of the building. Last week, for example, performance space... Uh, presented a range of works, a new performance work, Parading as a Party, by a group of young artists called Team Mess in one of the rehearsal rooms, the tracks, the exquisite exhibition, Trace Elements, Spirit and Memory in Japanese and Australian Photo Media in Bay 19, the gallery space, and in the foyer, and Quick and Dirty, a queer performance event in the foyer and Bay 20, the theatre, all running simultaneous to... The so-you-think-you-can-dance live events. for demographically very different audiences. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the impact of the hard and soft infrastructure on the art, which is, after all, what we're here for. Um, So what is the impact on the practice, on the art produced, and therefore on the audience experience? Um, I'm just going to talk about a few works. Um, A couple of weeks ago, Performance Space launched their 2009 program with a performance event, Pursuit, a collaboration between composer and violinist John Rose and media artist Robin Fox. During a residency in one of the tracks, the rehearsal spaces, they developed a performance work for the foyer. They played, they experimented, and they went out into the foyer to try stuff out. It was a chamber orchestra of bicycle-powered acoustic musical instruments combined with wireless transmission technology. It was a Saturday night. It started at 7.30 and over 400 people gathered in the building to experience this event. Clip-on clickers, bells and horns, wind string and piano instruments were all pedal-powered by volunteer riders. The foyer space was a choreographed spectacle of sound, speed and light. It was a joyous event that capitalised on the unique features and scale of the space. Audiences couldn't experience it anywhere else, and the artists who had been in resident had had sufficient um, opportunity to inhabit, to play, to test the sound and movement in the space. Performance space could not have produced this event had it not relocated to Carriage Works. So the context at Carriageworks is opening up new possibilities for audiences and artists alike. The scale of the space undoubtedly inspires both artists' and audiences' imagination and ambition. A combination of skills development, knowledge building and extra resources are required to actually realise those ambitions. In September last year, Performance Space and Critical Path Choreographic Centre hosted a forum called Designing the Space. Margie Medlin, an artist and current director of Critical Path, who's recently moved back to Sydney after years of living in Melbourne and overseas, referred to having an old road map of the performance community, its structures and the way things work here, and trying to get her GPS up to date. The meeting quickly exposed that many of the artists, technical collaborators and producers in the room were also struggling at, at, to create an updated GPS. So we set about doing it collectively. Staff from both Performance Space and Carriage Works participated. Our respective workplaces are incredibly busy and in the process we sometimes forget to slow down to share information in forums such as these and take the time to build collective knowledge and to collaborate to create change at that meeting we compared notes about how artists had used and were planning to use the spaces and in particular bay 20 at carriage works which is an exceptional theatre space has everybody been there has anybody not been there Okay, so there's a few people. Um, So it's it's 33 metres deep and 16 metres wide and 8 metres high. So it offers an incredible volume for artists to sculpt. There's a brutalist cold concrete wall that runs the length of the space, and the opposite wall is part of the original fabric of the space, exposing the history of the building as a workplace. Painted with cream and industrial silver and scarified with machinery, graffiti, burns, signage, and other pockmarks. The floor and half of the end-on walls are newly installed timber, so the surfaces of the space evoke both warmth and cold. The different surfaces are very particular, and whilst they can be muted by drawing black curtains around the space, even the tracking has to jut out at one point because of the heritage machinery on the wall behind it. I love these particularities. They effectively make it a site, not a black box theatre, even when it's trying to be. The performer-audience relationship scale in Bay 20 with the banked seating um, throws the audience into a a particular kind of perspective as mostly they're above the eye level of the performers, so effectively they look down on the action, which works well for dance, installation and physical theatre. Because of these particularities, many of the artists who've worked in the space have approached it site specifically – And I'd like to take you through just a few examples of the ways in which various artists have used the space, capitalising on its particularities and sense of place in this moment. Roslyn Crisp's Dance um, used Bay 20 site specifically, so this next lot of images are are, are her in the space, without an audience. Um, Ros worked in the theatre for almost two weeks, adapting her piece to the space. As presenters, performance space needed that time too to strike the seating, to light huge tracts of the space as she wanted to use the whole theatre, not just one performance area, to work in tandem with the artist as she got to know the space. One tiny, albeit dynamo of a body was taking on the entirety of the space. As Susan Sontag said, and Ros Ros Crisp embodies, dancers are travellers and space eaters. Deborah Jones wrote in The Australian at the time, Crisp is seen at first as a projection on one of the vast walls at Carriage Works, flailing and staggering as if a teenager at her own private rave party. Then she spotted in silhouette in the far corner of the space, as far away from the audience as you can get without being on film. She then moves to one of a number of performance areas so that many in the audience, scattered about on benches, can see her clearly only if they move about. It's up to them, not her, to provide decent sight lines. When Crisp next moves to another part of the room, the audience parts reverently to let her through. The only soundtrack is Crisp's breathing and the sound of her feet hitting the floor. The movement is twitchy and ungainly as Crisp pushes her body to often ugly extremes. A text, the work of regular Crisp collaborator Isabelle Ginot, appears on a wall during the dance, trying to tell 100 stories at the same time, it says. That is essentially what the best dance can do, says Deborah Jones, and where its power lies, and it's good to be reminded of dance's ability to generate ideas and emotions that will be different for every viewer. An almost opposite approach to dealing with the enormity of the space by placing one body in there with a moving audience was taken by the Fondue set when they were commissioned by Performance Space to create Evening Magic 2, Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, a great night of contemporary dance, music and participatory performance. Seeing the scale of the space and wondering how the three of them could begin to fill it, Jane McKernan says we'd made a we'd made a work for nighttime 2 which is actually the photograph that you're seeing here it's actually in the foyer at carriage works i don't have any images of their show in the theatre um, we'd made a work for nighttime 2 for the foyer and suddenly it was like oh we could get heaps of people performing our work here so we decided to go hard and fill it that was a change for us allowing ourselves to be open enough to invite 40 volunteers in to do our choreography the scale influenced that And the sheer size made us go, yeah, let's do excess. Let's have three bands, but we'll make them perform in the size of the spaces they normally perform in. So they were all on these tiny squares of carpet to approximate the stage at, say, the Annandale. This is still Jane speaking. We thought of this room like a school gym with all these multiple areas, but we didn't want to be massive all the time. So we worked with Agatha Goatsnape as the designer, and she set up smaller spaces within the big space by making a movable set that brought in the space for us. So she made these letters that spelled enough that were moved around by the hoofers to shape the space through the piece. We definitely wouldn't have done anything like that if it weren't for the scale of that space. The third work I'd like to talk about is Alan Schacker's The Bland Project, which again uses the space quite differently. It premiered in Bay 20 last year and used the space longitudinally. With four performers and an architecture created largely by video projections and mobile screens, Keith Galash writes in Real Time 87, the architecture is constantly reconfigured as images are multiplied and magnified over much of the high, long wall of the space, or writ smaller on, uh, as the screens travel, suspended from wires tracked from rigs each end of the space. Much of the lighting, too, emanates from the rigs. There's a sense of a special place with its own shifting parameters and mobility, the screens largely appearing to move on the, of their own volition. There is a curious beauty about its totality." End quote. Alan and his team of collaborators had only uh, had access to the space for only one week. And He says of the experience, "Unfortunately, one can't make the work in the theatre it's being presented in, which would be on my wish list. But because last year I had a performance space residency for four weeks with another project in Track 8, which closely approximates this space, track, uh, Bay 20, we were able to understand what kind of room this is, its volume, its spatial relationships, and to some extent its textures." We used the concrete walls in Track 8 as a projection surface. So when we came to have the opportunity to use Bay 20, we wanted to use the concrete wall as the rear wall that the audience looks at. But we also wanted to turn around the room to change the way it immediately is perceived by people who know it. End quote. Alan says that being an, an audience member um, many times in Bay 20 gave him a sense of how he wanted to use the space. He says, I wanted the limits of the set not to be the limits of the space, to create the feeling that the space the performers were inhabiting was repetitive and limitless. Which he did beautifully. Um, Bay 20 offers enormous flexibility and the scale is glorious. But both of these positives come at a price, which is increasingly beyond the economies of project-based artists and small companies. The new scale necessarily means that the overheads are more costly, more front-of-house staff, more technical staff, more cabling, more equipment, more time to move through the dual processes of negotiating with performance space who then have to brief or negotiate with carriage works, and most importantly, less DIY. The do-it-yourself cultures of the small-to-medium sector, and in particular the independent arts sector, is not just about minimising costs. It's a philosophy that impacts upon the culture of making, of subverting hierarchy, of capitalising on everyone's multiple skills and of knowledge building by swapping them. Performance Spaces long-term technical manager Richard Manner said at that same forum, the main challenge in Bay 20 is the rigging and the skill level needed to ensure safety. So the scale of the artist's vision dovetailed with the increased tech skills and hours required and the tiny economies of the projects, the same as they've been for years now, needs to be balanced carefully. Richard Montgomery, who was then operations manager at Carriageworks, was more forthright. It's a wonderful room with incredible potential, but on the flip side, he says, the small arts companies using it are so pushed for money and resources the two are virtually irreconcilable. Importantly, Richard Manor reminds us of the time it took to accrue knowledge at the old space at Cleveland Street, Performance Space's previous home. He says, "Eventually, we had a meccano grid that was flexible, and you could light from everywhere. And there was, a, but there was more than 20-year history of things that had been solved over time, about what looked right here or there and why that won't work. Those things get passed on from project to project and from technician to technician." This knowledge accrual that we need for the new space at Carriage Works will take time. But we must actually also find conscious and methodical ways to pass it on. One of the issues for almost all of the artists who've created new works for the theatre space is the extended amount of time it takes to bump in. Performance Spaces Economy offers most new works in the theatre just two weeks in the space. And artists with their own small economies or project budgets are driven by the budget to to do a certain number of shows and to schedule the opening so that a review might come out by a certain night in the first week or second week Um, so so that there's time for audiences to build. This has meant that most projects only have a few days to bump in and open. But these are only slightly more generous timelines for bumping in for touring work, which is tried and tested. They're not the timelines for new work that is still solving its technical and artistic issues during the bump-in. This lack of time in the space means that the performers are only getting to do their tech run and dress rehearsal in the theatre before opening. And some have found themselves in improvisation with their lighting operator on opening night, rather than confidently inhabiting the space prior to an audience joining them. Clearly, this isn't the best way to support the development of the practice from a management or soft infrastructure perspective. This disjunction between the scale of the spaces and the resources available to most artists working there needs to be addressed. Inhabiting a space over time to research and play is ostensibly how people develop their craft and accrue knowledge about a space's particularities, possibilities and constraints. As Margie Medlin said at the Designing the Space Forum, where is the space now here in Sydney to develop spatial thinking and design process, a space to explore and develop collaborative processes? At the old performance space, I mixed film, photography and lighting approached lighting design as a visual art, it was very important to be able to work there by myself till late at night and that the space was incredibly flexible, paint it, drill it, move seating, lighting positions, etc. That play space environment that Margie's talking about can't be replicated exactly, as times have changed utterly in relation to OH&S and other compliance issues. And while it sounds like it could be an artist-run space with all its DIY capacities... The reality is that artist-run spaces are dealing with escalating rents, they're struggling for survival in Sydney, and none will have the comparable volume or equipment. Carriageworks is that space. The soft infrastructures, performance space, Carriage Works, and all of the other organisations involved need to negotiate as much DIY capacity and culture within the frameworks of compliance of the institution and to develop better systems of capitalising on the relationship between the more affordable tracks or rehearsal spaces and the theatre. Again, this is a work in progress. The tracks work effectively as development spaces and performance space programmes about 12 residencies annually to to develop work in those spaces. As Alan Shacker experienced, working in track eight for four weeks, albeit on a different project, fundamentally prepared him for working in the theatre space. So this connection between the making and presenting spaces catered for in the hard infrastructure is yet to be fully realised by the soft. We're still catching up. And it will require some fresh thinking and restructuring for all the soft infrastructure to be involved, performance space, carriage works, the tenant companies and independent artist communities. It means doing things differently, slower. It will mean raising more resources, and or allocating more resources to fewer projects. It's a conversation that needs to be had openly if we're seriously committed to make great, world-class, unforgettable contemporary arts. If we're committed to engaging with new forms, experimenting with ideas in motion, and being relevant to the ever-changing culture we're part of. How am I going for time? Oh good. <laughs> um, I was going to talk a little bit about uh, live works, which was um, a programming initiative that we introduced last year, last year, to deal with some of these very issues. So, um, instead of trying to offer everybody the opportunity to do a season of work in the theatre. Um, A, not all work needs that or is suited to a space of that scale, but also we we wanted to be able to show smaller works um, and we wanted to be able to search and find intimacy in the enormity of that beautiful building. So we we programmed a a small festival over um, a week um, and one of the things that we did was to, to um, either commission or to, or to um, install two uh, sort of social spaces in the foyer, intimate social spaces. This is one of them, Keg D'Souza's Shmiglou, um, so that people could actually sit in there and hang out together. Um, there was also Razzle Dazzle by Mickey Quick. I don't have an image of that. Um, this is Sarah Jane Norman in her Songs of Rapture and Torture, which was actually performed in the Follow Spot Room. It was a one-to-one performance for a few minutes at a time. Um, This is Matt Press' The Tent, performed in the industrial space as part of live works. Peter Fraser's Tarkovsky's Horse, performed in track eight, which we created a small theatre space from. And in the theatre space, Pasidi Company's Finale, which are... removed the seating and put in a series of... installed a series of big pieces in the space, including quite a lot of square metres of grass. Um, So that's a kind of programming way that we're trying to deal with some of these issues, to give people more time in the space when they are in the space, but also not to always put things into into large spaces. Um, i wanted to talk here a little bit about the separation of hard and soft infrastructure because clearly part of this disjunction that we're experiencing between hard and soft infrastructure comes from the sheer newness of the context and programming structures that were useful in performance spaces old building need further updating two years into the context but it also into the new context but it also stems from a deep flaw in the process of carriage works development the compartmentalising of the planning of physical space from the management of the people that would inhabit them. The soft infrastructure, the management entity and the resources available to it were not up for discussion when we were discussing the building. So on one hand we were talking about the ideal for the physical spaces but not the operational structures and available resources. They were outside the terms of reference of the key user reference group, and even initial. Um, oh, I, I seem to—I didn't talk about that, did I? Dropped a page out. Anyway, uh, so there was a key user reference group that um, that informed the architects about what we needed of the spaces. Um, the, uh, the tenant companies were all involved in that group. Um, but as, uh, as carriage works had not been established as an entity then or as an organisation then, they were not. So... Um Yes, the resources that were available, the operational structures were outside the terms of reference of the key user reference group and even the initial business case for the carriage works was deemed commercial in confidence, keeping us arts people away from the real business of management. I'm talking here in the 2002-2003 development of of the building. We were privy to some of the broad parameters. For example, we knew that of the 10 bays at Carriageworks, four bays had been set aside to generate income to subsidise the Arts Centre. We knew that the government had committed initially to the development and start-up period and that Carriageworks was expected to be self-sufficient within three years. I hasten to point out Carriage Works is clearly not the only arts building that suffered from this compartmentalised planning, this separation of thinking about the hard and the soft. Nor indeed the only new building that will take years to realise its potential. That's inevitable. But how does this mistake get made over and over? internationally we've seen a generation of great lottery buildings um, springing up across the UK with a common cry that the buildings are great but where's the money for programming and in Sydney over the decades we've seen the Opera House, Riverside Theatres the Sydney Recital Hall, Campbelltown Contemporary Arts Centre and others struggle with similar issues in their initial stages In the case of Campbelltown Contemporary Arts Centre, the the consultation about the building's conversion from a gallery to a multidisciplinary arts centre was undertaken with community, not arts workers and artists. So there are some, which is great, but only part of the equation, so there are some issues about the suitability of the spaces which will need to be addressed down the track. While no recurrent funding was committed six months prior to opening in Campbelltown when Lisa Havler was appointed director, what is interesting is that now Council commits 1.5 million per annum to the running costs with a further 0.4 million of in-kind support services. It's substantial recognition of the significance of soft infrastructure as a fundamental civic responsibility. In other cases, building development has been driven by the vision of a single client encompassing both artistic and resource management knowledge. For example, the development of Sydney Theatre saw the artistic, architectural and management knowledges working in tandem, perhaps stretching them all, but nevertheless working jointly. It's a less complex set of relationships and building uses, but the key differences to its success is that the Sydney Theatre Company, the clients who are also the soft infrastructure, pre-exist the building of the theatre... An international example is the 3LD Art and Technology Centre in New York, owned and run by three-legged dog media and theatre group who focus on large-scale experimental artworks. Their original downtown headquarters was lost on 9-11, so they rebuilt in Lower Manhattan and opened their fantastic new home in 2006 with state-of-the-art facilities and spaces. It's an owner-operator model. So again, the artistic, architectural and management vision were married from the outset. It's important to acknowledge here that Carriage Works would not be an art centre at all if it were not for the confluence of people with great vision and commitment collaborating across government, the bureaucracy and the art sector. These people grasped the moment and indeed grasped one of the last inner-city heritage buildings that might otherwise have been lost to the arts. Given it was for a sector, not a single client, this was a bold and timely intervention in the cultural landscape of New South Wales. But we were all also hampered by the tradition of treasuries the world over of making the one-off capital spend but being categorically averse to committing recurrent investment. This entrenches the unhelpful idea that hard design must proceed soft, that the building comes first, that there's a necessary sequential separation. Collectively, as an arts sector, as business, as philanthropists, as bureaucrats, as audiences, as theorists, we've failed to convince politicians and indeed the broader community that contemporary arts is an essential service. It's still a politically courageous concept to commit ongoing investment to the arts, and we need to change that. What if the sequence of hard design first followed by soft was reversed? This hierarchy turned inside out, so the soft design was privileged over the hard, the networks of relationships over the bricks and mortar. Imagine if the managing entity for carriage works had been established five years or even three years instead of six months prior to the building opening. Real partnerships between the soft infrastructures inhabiting the building could have been conceptualised, could have conceptualised the future collaboratively. Real partnerships between the arts and business might have been brokered prior to the building opening. Real local ownership might have been fostered amongst the local resident community. The commercial bays, of which only one is currently developed, might have been leased permanently by now, and may be generating the necessary income for the art centre to flourish. Customer relations management software may have, been pro- may have provided information on audiences so closer relations could be developed by now, and much, much more. It's by no means too late to achieve all of these things, and I'm confident they will be done. But it will take a lot more time because we're up and running simultaneously developing both the supply of contemporary performance and the demand of it. Arts organisations in the small-to-medium sector move fast and have enormous accountabilities encompassing artistic, audience and business development. We're ambitious and we're always pushing for more and better results, more innovation, more great works, more unforgettable nights more integrated technologies, more critical debate, more audiences. And in recent years, we've added to the list of must-dos more private money, more strategic partners, better business plans, more, better, deeper, everything. Now, I'm absolutely not arguing that the art sector shouldn't be as strategic about audience and business development as it is about the creation of good art. But often... With the extra compliance now expected of small businesses, coupled with our own ambition and perhaps an inherent lack of confidence or capacity to communicate loudly and proudly what we do well and how well we do it, it often feels like we're in the business of busyness, a zone where we forget to slow down, we forget to share information and take the time to build collective knowledge and to collaborate to create change. The business of busyness is exciting for a while, but in the long term it stunts our capacity for fresh thinking, for reflection, for imagining, and for having calm and respectful debate, which I believe sits at the heart of a healthy culture, of a healthy arts sector, and of a healthy arts centre. So, despite the economic crisis, perhaps even because of it, it's time for us to be thinking differently, to be imagining, prioritising, investing in different networks and relational systems. My friend and colleague Ross Gibson suggested recently that as ecologies collapse, we'll have to value flexible and robust immaterial resources rather than those solid ones we're used to pulling from the earth. So too, we need to fight for recognition that the immaterial and ephemeral forces in our culture also create knowledge Energy, activity, and value, not just the stuff that stays, the bricks and mortar. With the start up money for carriage works running out at the end of this year, everyone's on standby. Audiences who've grown to love the place, artists who've made miracles on the tiniest of budgets to create great, ambitious works, local businesses who flourished with the additional activity in the area, and tenants, including performance space who continue to invest so much in the soft infrastructure. To make that great place sustainable, real support is needed. Investment from government, investment from private partners, and avid participation from audiences and artists. Active, forthright, and critical participation the complex issues facing all soft infrastructures in the arts not just those at carriage works need divergent thinking creative generation of multiple answers harking back to rex's commitment to the idea of theatre as collaborative practice rather than as a vehicle for his individual expression one of the greatest challenges for leaders in the arts is to invite really invite that critical participation and collaboration and welcome the changes it might bring on. This needs to be done transparently, so the discussion is shared and and learning can be generated by bringing stakeholders together in the flesh or online or both, asking for responses to provocations, responding to the responses and inviting more discussion. Those that participate will feel included, those that don't make a choice but are aware that they were invited in. It's time to abandon old paradigms of commercial inconfidence and competition and sense of entitlement and work collaboratively to build the demand for the arts, to argue why it's important, to research with punters and partners to negotiate new ways of expressing its significance. Collaboration doesn't undermine the need for leadership. On the contrary, listening and creative problem-solving are hallmarks of great leadership. And as with any complex issues, we need to hear them played back to us intergenerationally and interculturally through the experiences of audiences, artists, staff, peers, businesses and government to negotiate a way forward. For it's not only artists who need to be creating new territories of imagination and play. It's also the infrastructures and governments who support them and the communities that participate. We need some fresh thinking and critical dialogue across these sectors, extending from the edges of our knowledge, stretching us. Because this categorically affects the practice and the capacity for artists to make and audiences to participate in the kind of work we urgently need right here, right now. We need to make the time to be a learning culture rather than a generator of quantifiable outputs The business of busyness I've referred to, coupled with decades of economic rationalism and a lack of confidence by artists, arts workers and their passionate audiences and supporters, have left us obsessed with quantifiable outputs, still struggling with how to express qualitative results. Of course it's important how many new works were made, how many young audiences attended, how many people came all together and of them how many paid. But as Diane Ragsdale in her keynote address to the Australia Council for the Arts Marketing Summit said last year, don't conflate money or attendance with impact. She urges us to care about whether and how the experience has affected people and find a way to assess our progress in making great art that matters to people. In a recent speech delivered to arts managers and producers by Ben Cameron, the arts program director of the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation in the US, he lays a challenge to all arts organisations, asserting that in this moment of accelerated technological change, unprecedented competition for audiences and economic downturn, that we need to change our thinking from how will we survive to what are we doing to change the world? He says, we must begin by asking, why must we exist today? Because we have a building is not enough. Because we have a history and awards and a reputation is not enough. What is it in the world, in an external world, that mandates the flourishing of the arts in our communities today? Indeed, every arts organisation needs to be able to answer, how would my community be damaged if we closed our doors and went away tomorrow? End quote. Every arts world, centre in the world needs to address these urgent questions and at Carriage Works, the organisations who constitute the combined soft infrastructure need to develop the answers collaboratively. In that process, I'm confident they'll nut out a strategy for how to ensure the space and its activities are hardwired into the soul of this city. Thank you.
1: We do have plenty of time for questions, so uh, if, as Meredith said before, you'd like to ask a question, there's a microphone there. You can go and line up and uh, get on the mic and uh, ask away. Right, well, I I actually haven't got a question, but I've got a comment. Uh, I thought that was a terrific diagnostic, critical diagnostic of everything that's gone right and things that haven't gone as well as they should have or might have been done better. Um, but actually, I was very impressed having seen stuff at Carriage Works and then seen what you put up on the screen there. Uh, it seemed to me that an enormous amount of progress had already been made in terms of how to, to enter into a fruitful dialectic with this, this new sort of space. And then I started to think compared to. And you mentioned the lottery buildings in the UK, and the one that I'm most interested in there is the, the Globe Reconstruction, which has been up for nearly 10 years now, and they're still trying to work out how to use the damn thing. Mm. But it's not actually all that different to 1570, when someone had the bright idea that you could turn an animal-baiting arena into a theatre by sticking a stage at one end of it, and it took them the best part of 20 years before any good stuff was really coming out of that. And speaking as someone who's, who's read some of the earlier bad stuff, uh, <laughs> you better not be doing that. Um, so um, I, I think... Uh, I'd just like you to, to comment on the, on the extent to which you think things have actually grown and developed in terms of that use of the space. Oh, um, uh, enormously.
2: I mean, um, I think... Uh, for, for me, the, the forum that I talked about, the Designing the Space Forum, was a bit of a landmark in, 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 as I said, sort of slowing down and actually looking at what had been done in the space and what um, what... Sharing what the challenges had been, and they were—you know—they were—it was like tracing paper, putting tracing paper on top of, you know, uh, each other. It, you could see the 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 kind of growth of capacity, but you could also see that the same the same sort of red challenges were were the same for each group. So, um, so I mean, I think that you know, I um, I'm very serious when I say that Carriage Works and Performance Space, um, and other organisations who've put work on there, though they are the two. Main organisations, you know, have have um, seriously got in there and done stuff and worked really hard to kind of break through some of the, the difficulties. But the difficulties are going to um, keep on nipping at our heels until we we do something um, we do something kind of uh, larger, you know, about about those issues.
1: Yes. We've got a question. Thank you.
3: Am I permitted to make a comment? Yes. Um, I've been fortunate over 50 years, I've been able to afford to see pretty well any theatre or dance or anything that I wanted to see. I've never subscribed to the idea that it should be supported by government. (coughs) Um, To me, it's ridiculous to suggest that you go to opera people who can afford the price of a seat, a seat at the opera. And it's subsidised by people who are working with families who couldn't go in a fit. (coughs) That's one side of it. The other side you're talking about, already a great deal of money has been spent in this forum. If I may, back in 1960, 61, I'm not sure anymore, a group of, of entertainers and people who worked in entertainment in Wellington and New Zealand set up a playgroup called Downstage. They started in a rowing club shed. They were given or provided with cheap space on Manor Street. I no longer remember the family that provided it. <clears throat> they worked on a bare floor. They had no money for scenery minimal lighting, and they worked in slacks and a roll-necked jersey. That's what they worked in. And they drew a regular audience of about 200 people. My wife and I were subscribers from the very, very early days. We used to go to the meetings when they were talking about what they were putting on. Almost never did they have any even costuming and some of the best work I have ever seen was done at downstage. I was back in Wellington many years later. They now have a beautiful playhouse, which was given to them by the family that gave them a space. It is a beautiful theatre. Now, I've only seen a limited amount of work in it. It never came anywhere near the work that was done on a bare stage. I'm um, not
2: quite sure how to respond to that. I mean, I agree that there, there, you know, there's a history of great, poor theatre and there's a history of, um, of uh, stripped-back um, uh, work that you can see in, in the, in the um, rehearsal spaces, at performance space uh, as well. Um, but I think that there are... Um, you know, one of the things about carriage works that um, that I love, actually, is, uh, and again, this is not quite fully realised yet, but there's time, is that um, the, the, the smaller spaces, which are still very large spaces, the, the rehearsal spaces, um, have the capacity... Um, to be performance spaces. They don't have licenses yet, but, um, eventually they will. And in those spaces, um, people have, um, shown the experiments that they've done maybe after four weeks or six weeks. And it is really, um, one of the highlights of that space really is that, um, that inhabit, inhabitation of a space simply sometimes with props and costumes, sometimes not. But really, um, beautiful work has been made in there.
4: hi Fiona I'd like to know from you what you think the impact has been of having the very commercial operations or entertainment going on at carriage works like so you think you can dance and some of the other things where you get that big group of people coming in but and I have to declare I'm on the board of the performance space um, but you don't seem to be getting the crossover Mm. that you might hope would come, and I've seen it happen in other venues where it's been put to, because of commercial imperatives, it's had to go out and get commercial operations to come in, and it's often, I just wonder in the long term how that's going to work.
2: Yeah, look, it's a good question and one that um, there's been a lot of discussion about. Um, I think. You know, in the first year, some people here tonight were there on the night of um, Ross Gibson and Kate Richard's opening of Bystander and um, Lucy Guerin's opening of a a new dance work um, when uh, the Maya Fashion Parade was on. And it was was pretty excruciating um, in terms of the, 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 the... the way that those two, three sets of audiences mixed, um, and the kind of, just even the quality of the sound that, you know, it just is, is, is difficult to, to control in that kind of open space. Um, so there are some, you know, really spectacular kind of almost disasters. Um, but, um, um, I think, you know, that was, that was, that was, a a moment where we all sat down and went, oh, how do we make that not happen again? Um and how do we manage um sound so that it you know, blah blah blah. So um we've we've had some spectacular moments, but um I I mean I, I guess I, I read a lot about, you know, Radial System in Berlin which um doesn't get any government funding and um and does this kind of balance between the commercial and the arts hires and, and relationships. And you know, nobody ever drills down into the detail of it to actually say how it works. And everybody has the wish that um you know that people who are at that Maya fashion parade or any, or some of the audiences that are coming to So You Think You Can Dance now know about carriage works and will come back. I personally Don't quite believe that. I want to, but I'm not sure that I believe it. So there's sort of two things happening there. I think you know there is, um, there are some good examples of it actually. Um, working, but it's, um, it needs to be managed very, very carefully and between all of the stakeholders that have got anything on in that space. Um, and I think that, you know, um, things are much better um, now than they, they were in the first year. But So You Think You Can Dance is a kind of classic example where, you know, we weren't sure how that was going to play out. But, in fact, it's fairly minimal impact. And that's kind of what we hope for, which is kind of a sad outcome of this idea of you know, maybe mixing audiences across commercial and, and, and arts and therefore having a kind of, you know, um, I don't know, deeper exchange or something. Um, it just doesn't actually... It's surface. It doesn't actually work, I don't think. But um, if, as we now talk about it, you know, the impact can be minimised, then it's, um, it's like a share house that's functional rather than beautiful or something. I don't know.
5: Hi, Fiona. Hi, Ian. Uh, I should introduce myself. I'm Ian Zammett from Carriageworks, um, program coordinator for the last 18 months. It has been an amazing process, uh, incredibly difficult at times, and Mm -hmm. the management between commercial and arts has been, I think, a daily question for us. How do we do it? Mm. It's incredibly difficult. And actually, I guess this is more of a comment, but also maybe it, Hopefully we'll raise things. Um, just the, I guess the nature, for example, the Maya Parade, that was a massive um, introduction in how not to run a space, in a <laughs> sense. And it's trying to make things work in, in that regard. And so we've been w- working away ways to how to use the foyer, in particular, which is such a wonderful public space for people to come in, and the vastness of it. And how do you manage that to make it work? And especially with the arts audiences that we're hoping to Grow um, performance-based audiences uh, are very strong, a very tight knit, and it's growing now. I think maybe partially with the shift over to Carriage Works, but also because of the change in the nature of it. I guess being there, mm. but it's also it's growing audiences getting to know the place, and and I think that's been one of the biggest tasks for the producers for the Carriage Works program, and. I don't know if you feel this as well, but it's, it's, like you said, it's going to take time, I think, partly uh, for people to get to know what carriage works is, or what it can be. And the mix between commercial and arts, as an example for this year, one big thing we've got coming up, because of course So You Think You Can Dance is in at the moment, the Hip-Hop Festival, which was on last year, was a really massive, um, massive event, and it did quite well. And it it tapped into a very uh, word-of-mouth community, not something that uh, was advertised huge or anything like that and it got sold out and packed out so it had a very particular mm-hmm. kind of community. But that was very different, I guess, from... Well, it may be very different, but then the Performance based Arts Program, then carriage works, then uh, Finders Keepers Market Program and it's a lot of very different audiences and I think part of that is developing the community around it mm-hmm. and getting to know what the community is around the carriage works idea that it is a new space where different things pretty much could happen all the time, mm. that it could work with other things. Mm. And understanding that they could work is, I think, that absolute thing that you were saying about making the government aware potentially uh, and the community aware of how important arts is in the area along with all the commercial prospects that come through. Mm. that it can work together, they can work, and they won't necessarily... Audiences won't necessarily mix, I think. I don't Mm. think it's necessary. I think I agree. I don't think they're always going to mix. In fact, in certain cases, they can't. And it's management which comes down to it and Mm. learning the space. Um, Do you think Mm. that's the main thing, actually learning the space and getting to know it?
2: Yeah, and and I think... uh, uh, um, uh, there is a, there is a kind of, you know, I talked a little bit about um, the soft. I, I seem to have skipped a page. Sorry about that. Um, but um, I talked a little bit about the sort of this, you know, the soft frame and the front of house and and bar and um, cafe culture and you know the, the the people in the space. Now I think that that's a really difficult call. Is to service um, some quite high end commercial. Um, uh, you know the appropriate soft frame for some high-end commercial event, and then something that is is potentially you know a queer event that um, for Mardi Gras like that's actually um, quite difficult to do simultaneously. So I think there are some um, some you know some planning issues, and and you know while carriage works uh, you know absolutely sort of can't afford to 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 say no to this particular you know. Um, uh, commercial opportunities, and we understand why, um, there's, there's, there's still a kind of need to work through how those cultures can mix and, and if they can be programmed to another night or, you know, we can be programmed to another night so that, so that those kind of um, unmixable um, crowds don't make the wrong kind of unforgettable night. Yeah,
6: yeah.
2: Thanks, Vianna. Thanks, Ian.
6: Hi. Um I I really love the carriage work space. I remember the first time I went there was for Underbelly, I think two years ago. Mm-hmm. And that that was just incredible. Like it's the whole every element of that space was used and you could see something in every little nook and cranny. Yep. And it's it's a massive space and it's incredible. But I think that even the biggest spaces sorry, even the smaller spaces are very big mm. and very expensive. And for um for young artists, young emerging artists, I, I don't know how feasible a space it is for us to sort of to engage in. As an audience, I love it, but as as a as a young artist, a young performer, mm. it's it's just too big, and mm. I I almost feel like in in Sydney in particular, there's so there's so few smaller theatres. Like like we've got the big theatres, and I wonder if like what what there is to fill the gap in between. Like you've got a handful of a smattering of small theatres that kind of fill the gap between the Opera House and Carriage Works, and there's there's just such a huge gap in smaller venues mm. in, in Sydney and, and like, is there not a need for that just as much as these really big... You know... There is
2: and, you know, I think that artist-run initiatives and spaces in, in Sydney have um, have for many years kind of filled part of that function very, very successfully, though, you know, in a mind-bogglingly kind of um, uh, difficult... You know, for the people who run them, it's, it's, it's a lot of work and so... Um, they don't, um, they don't necessarily survive the kind of, you know, the 10-year mark or, you know, some of them have, First Draft has, as we know. But, um, but, but um, I agree, there is still this gap. Carriage Works is not filling that gap. Um, and, but, I, but I would also say that, um, you know, the residency program at Performance Space actually offers the space for nothing. Um, but there's so much pressure on that program... Um, and we can only subsidise a certain number of weeks. So this is where the government funding actually does come in. Um, This is where um, potentially partnerships with with philanthropists who are interested in supporting young artists might pay your rent. (laughs) Well, they they do exist, but it's it's pretty hard yakka, and it's not going to be brokered by you. It's got to be brokered by the the soft infrastructure, the, the carriage works or performance space or whoever. So it's very difficult. There's still... Carriageworks is not answering that kind of deep issue in terms of um, the, the area that artist run initiatives still need to, to, to work at.
6: Thanks.
4: <laughs> um, Fiona... <laughs> Congratulations on a great speech. It was really fantastic to hear you articulate some of those experiences over the last couple of years. Um, I guess, like everyone else, I'm, I'm, I'm commenting rather than asking a question, but it did strike me listening to you talk that that um, tension that you outlined between the hard and the soft was something that various organisations have tried to deal with. And Mm. the closest example and the most effective for some time, for a limited period of time, was Spiral, uh, the Wakoal Art Centre in Japan. And the model that they used, which has been taken up uh, in different contexts, was... um, There's a French word for it which I'm not going to be able to reproduce but it's, it's about the implication of, of art and commerce and what it did actually was establish a whole mm. range of businesses where, which were actually built into the space in order to support the mm. art. Now, when the founding director of Spiral died, uh, it has to be said that, that that was lost but I think around the world and particularly in Asia, I mean, there's been a huge mm. emphasis on something we seem to find impossible in Mm. this country, which is to talk about that tri-sector relationship Mm. which brings civil society, you know, the government sector and the corporate sector Mm. into conversation in some way instead of... We're we're somehow always um, put in a position which is either or. Either you get the space or you get the work. Mm. You can't have both Mm. somehow. And it's been a fundamental problem in this country you know, like for as long as I can remember, which mm. is a reasonably long time now. I do think, um, you know, you do get those things and a new space is a very hard thing to grow and, and the, the great thing that Carriage Works offers is that parallel programming. But I think it still raises the same issue of everyone investing everything in performance space. And... Mm. Whoever it was before, I mean, yes, there have to be other spaces. I mean, Mm. you know, like there have to be spaces that are do it yourself spaces Mm. and spaces where you can take cheap wine into and you don't have to pay extortionate amounts for catering because as nice as that is for that corporate end of the market, it's not so great, actually, if you're, you know, one of the organisations who's a tenant in the building who actually can't afford it. Mm. So negotiating those things is going to take an incredibly long time, but I, I guess your fundamental call for a, a radical rethink about actually how we do that stuff is, mm. is what I draw most strongly from what you said tonight, mm. and uh, I think it can't be stated too often and too... Um, mm. So so you go for that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I mean I, I really agree about you. That's a very good example, a spiral example. And um you know, and, and I guess the initial vision for carriage works was actually that the that the, the four of the bays in the commercial side would subsidize the other side. And you know, there was always a lot of discussion about who would be the who would be those commercial tenants. And um and um I'm not entirely sure. I'm not okay with 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 what is what has happened. I know that the roof was leaking and that there's been major works, you know, that, so that it actually hasn't been able to be rented out, and so we're sort of, you know, behind the eight ball with this stuff, just as the as the as the sort of window period of the first three years is is coming to a close. So I think the the um, the vision was actually there for something similar to what you're talking about, and what. Um, what is, is sad is that it, that hasn't been able to be fulfilled, and I absolutely say that that's about um, the soft infrastructure coming six months before the opening. Is that enough? <laughs> right.
1: thank, thank you all very much for some very interesting comments and questions. Just before I, uh, we conclude, I, I want to explain this missing page uh, issue. Um, <laughs> When the lecture is published, the text of it is published in Australasian Drama Studies, the missing page will be there. <laughs> right? But we're going to quietly lose another page so that when you read it in ADS, you'll be the only ones that's got the whole picture. OK? Right. Let's, let's close now, and uh, would you please join me in thanking Fiona for what's been a wonderful lecture.